Good morning. It is good to see you here this morning, and I'm grateful that you have come to be a part of our worship services here at Ivy Creek. And I just want to echo a few things that Pastor Ted said earlier, especially for those of us uh, who knew Lynn Kahn and are mourning and grieving over his very sudden and unexpected passing yesterday. Um, Lynn was uh, a, a true friend. He was, uh, he was a fellow minister in the service of the gospel in this place right alongside me and as many of you who would have gotten my message on our phone tree yesterday would have heard there were so many different areas of his life and so many different areas of ministry that were he was in he was involved with and, and made a significant impact in and um, we are truly gonna miss him I'm gonna miss him there I, I recall not too long ago uh, probably within about a year, year and a half ago, he, uh, he, he, he called me and he said, I'd like to meet with you. And sometimes when you get that message, that's not always something that you're like excited about because sometimes those meetings cannot always be something that you want to be in. But we scheduled that meeting and then we sat down together and he just said, I just want to be able to pray for you. And I just want to be able to, to know how I can pray for you. So can we just... Can we, you just share what's going on with you? He said, I'm not asking for church prayer requests. I'm asking for Craig prayer requests. And, um, you know, it makes an impact on you to know that somebody's praying for you like that. Um, I'm truly going to miss Lynn. He was a great friend. He's a great friend to many of you in this room. And uh, I know you, like me, have a very heavy heart, but none of us are going to miss him more than Beth will. Anna Grace and Isabella and we need to continue to remember them in our prayers and be willing to support them in any way that we can and I know you as a church family would do that because you've done that consistently for the seven years that I've been a pastor at this church I've watched you do it and so as we are hurting we recognize that there are others that are hurting right alongside us and even worse than we are as painful as it is for us and I would like for us to just continue to to minister to them I do know this Lynn Kahn, if he were here, he'd say, now you guys go on now. You keep doing what you're doing. You keep sharing the gospel. You keep ministering for the cause of Christ. I, sh I shared in the first service, he would have been thrilled for no other reason that we had a, 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 an opportunity to learn more about Operation Christmas Child this morning because he was into missions. He chaired our missions committee. And so he would have been thrilled to know, Judy, that you were here this morning. You were talking about our opportunity as a church family to be involved in that. He left a great legacy for us, and I know that he would have us this morning to continue to do what it is that we do, and that is to worship the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're going to continue to do. So if you've got your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, would you please take them out? Turn with me once again to Mark's Gospel, Chapter 8. Mark's Gospel, Chapter 8. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 22 through 26. And as we do, I hope you know that we are coming right to the very middle of this entire study. And we are actually on the verge of coming to what is the key and pivotal passage in the Gospel of Mark. It's the, it's the passage that been, he's been leading us up to all through the first eight chapters thus far. And beginning in verse 27 of this, this chapter, we're, we're going to look at next week, the Lord willing... Uh, Jesus asked a very thought-provoking and, and a very penetrating question of his disciples. He looks at them and he says, Who do men say that I am? And, 
and, and the disciples return and they say to him, well, you know, some say that you're John the Baptist. Some say that you're Elijah. Some say you're some other prophet. Come back to life. And, and, and Jesus accepts that answer, but then he turns the question back around and directs it specifically to his disciples. And he says, who do you say that I am? And it is at that point that Peter makes this, this astounding, short, clear, insightful, and perceptive answer that he gives there in verse 29. He says, you are the Christ. Now, if you've been with us in our study of the book of Mark thus far, you'll know that that question, who is Jesus, is really the question that's dominated our story up to this point. It's the thing that we've been answering most about in the first eight chapters. Who is Jesus? And it is so interesting to me here that right here in the middle of chapter 8, Peter provides us with the most succinct and clearest answer possible when he says Jesus is the Christ. He is the, 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 the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the Holy One of God that the prophets of old foretold would come. And the clarity with which Peter gives this answer is especially noteworthy when you consider the previous passage that we looked at when last time we gathered together to study in Mark's Gospel. A couple of weeks back, we looked at verses 1 through 21 of Mark chapter 8. And if you'll recall there in 1 through 21, Jesus feeds the 4,000 with just a few loaves and a few bread miraculously. Following that, he travels across the sea and he's encountered by the Pharisees who, who, who really come at him, attempting to try to catch him and, 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 and they, they dispute with him. And it was following that that he gets in the boat with his disciples and his disciples don't have very much to eat. They've only brought one loaf of bread with him. But in the process, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of, of Herod. And it's their talk about leaven. It's the talk about yeast. It causes them to go, oh, wow, he is, he's on us now because we've only bought, brought one loaf of bread with us on the boat. And it's right here that Jesus just becomes so frustrated with his disciples. He, he looks at them and he says, guys, what's wrong with you? Do you not understand anything? Do you not recognize who you were with and who I am yet? And, and really in verses 17 and 18, he says, Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? He goes on to recount the fact that he had fed 5,000 in the wilderness. And then he talks about how they had just fed the 4,000. And then, and then at the end of chapter, at the end of verse 21, he asks this question, How is it that you do not understand? You know, the picture we walk away from that encounter is that the disciples really are, are a bunch of guys who though they had seen and though they had heard and though they had witnessed firsthand all the things that Jesus had done and said and taught, they were still unclear with regard to who Jesus actually was and what he was capable of doing. That's, that's where that last passage ended. And then the next passage we look at in verse 29 then, as I said, is Peter declaring unequivocally, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. So what happened? What, what changed? What, what took place that caused the blurriness, the unclear vision, the cloudiness of who they were and what they understood Jesus to be back in the first part of this chapter? What caused them to all of a sudden come into clarity here in the middle of this chapter? Well, our text this morning that we're going to look at, verses 22 through 26, those verses fall right in the middle of those two sections. And I believe that this passage we're going to look at today actually helps explain this really large pendulum swing that we see take place in this chapter. 
I believe not only is it going to help explain that for us, but I believe it's also going to help explain and give insight to us of how God works in our lives. You see, in verses 23 through 26, we read about a miracle that's only recorded here in the Gospel of Mark. You don't find it anywhere else. But in this miracle, this is a unique miracle, not simply because it's recorded here in Mark's Gospel, but because there's something unique that happens in it. And the uniqueness of this miracle has caused many to ponder it and to investigate it and to really chew on it for the significance and the meaning that it obviously has. So that's what we're going to try to do this morning ourselves. And the best thing that we can do then is to read the passage for ourselves and hear it, and then let's investigate it. Beginning in verse 22, Mark chapter 8 reads this, Then he, that is Jesus came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked at him and he said, I see men like trees walking. Then he, that is Jesus, put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up. And when he was, and he was restored, and he saw everyone clearly. And then Jesus sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town, nor tell anyone in the town. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. It's for the people of God. Let's pray together today. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to come together as people to be encouraged to encourage our own hearts when we're saddened and gripped by grief. We're grateful for the opportunity that we have to be able to open your word and be able to investigate it and study it, understand it. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would give us understanding. Help our blind eyes to see you this morning from your word. This is my prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I don't know if you picked up on it or not. I, I've already alluded to the fact that this miracle is unique. And it is the uniqueness of this miracle that really should cause us to stop and to pay attention to exactly what it is that we can learn from it. Why did Mark include it here? Well, the best thing for us to do, I think, is just to kind of walk ourselves through it and see exactly what we might learn. I've, been, I've given you a very simple outline in, your, in your, your bulletin just to kind of help us hang our thoughts on a few things. The first point there that I want you to see today is just simply a statement. And the first point on your outline is this. Jesus performs a two-stage miracle. A two-stage miracle. Notice the details that, this, that Mark gives us here. He says this blind man is brought to Jesus by his friends. The friends bring him to Jesus. Jesus then leads him by the hand, leads him out of the town. And that may sound a little bit weird, but here's the thing. Remember the Pharisees had asked for a sign earlier, and Jesus says there's not going to be any more signs given to you. I've already given you all the signs that you need. As a matter of fact, the town of Bethsaida was right near the area where the scholars believe that the 5,000 were fed when he fed them in the wilderness. And you might recall that Bethsaida had already gotten some pretty significant signs earlier, the things that miracles that Jesus had performed. But you might also know that Bethsaida was also one of those that Jesus pronounced a woe upon. He pronounced a woe upon them because he said, if other places like Tyre and Sidon had had the things done in them that have been done in your presence, 
they would have already believed, yet you remain hardened to me. And so Jesus pronounces a woe on this town, on this city of Bethsaida. And so what's interesting is, is though this blind man's been brought to him, Jesus takes him by the hand, leads him out of the city because he's not going to make a public spectacle of this man, nor is he going to give the rest of the town any more signs than what they've already received. And so Jesus takes him outside, and then Mark tells us that Jesus spits on the man's eyes. Now, I've been to eye doctors all my life. I developed a disease or an issue in my eye when I was three years old and began wearing glasses for the very first time. So I have been to ophthalmologist, optometrist, and every other kind of optical person that there can be at some point in my life. I've sat in more of those chairs, had more... uh, puffs of stuff put in my eyes and had my eyes dilated, the whole shooting match. even had laser surgery earlier this year in both of my eyes. Never had anybody spit in them. Not once. But that's what Jesus does. And it's not the first time that he does something like that. You remember back in chapter 7 how he healed the man who was both deaf and could not speak clearly? Jesus spit and he took that saliva and he rubbed it on the man's tongue. Now, if y'all had a little creeped out earlier, you're probably really creeped out now. But remember, this is Jesus, right? The man suddenly was able to speak clearly. People were able to understand him. Here, Jesus spits, puts that spit on the man's eyes, and then puts his hands on his eyes. Now, What's interesting then is that after that, though, Jesus does this. He says, what do you see? Do you see anything? Now, I would suggest to you that's also a little bit odd. Not only is it odd that Jesus spit and put it on the man's eyes, it's odd that he asked the man, did he see clearly? Most of the time when Jesus heals people, when we see this in Scripture, he either touches them or speaks to them, and following that gives them a command. I'll give you an example. The man who was a paralytic that four friends tore open the roof of the house of, of, of probably Peter's house or Peter's mother's house and lowered the man down in front of Jesus. What did Jesus say to him? He says, rise, pick up your pallet and walk. He gave him a command and the man did that. You know what Jesus did and asked him, hey, how do your legs feel? Do your legs feel strong enough to be able to stand up? Do you feel like, do you think that you'll be able to walk now that I've told you this? That's not how Jesus worked. He spoke. He gave a command. The man responded in obedience, and his obedience gave sufficient evidence that the miracle had been performed in his life. Here, though, here, though, after Jesus spits on the man's eyes and touches him, he says, do you see anything? I also find it interesting how the man responds. He says, well, I see men, but they look like trees. Walking around. Now, that's odd and it's weird to think about that, but it gives us an indication of something. Scholars really believe that this man probably had vision earlier in his life. But that something, a disease, something had happened later in life that had caused him to 
lose that vision and be unable to see. And that's the reason why he can differentiate and would even know the difference between what a man looked like and what a tree looked like. They don't believe that this man was born with a congenital blindness. They think that he had had sight earlier but had lost it. But that now Jesus has given him some sight back, but he's not able to differentiate between trees and men. They, everything is still blurry. Everything is fuzzy. His situation had improved. He could actually see now, but he didn't see clearly. He didn't see as perfectly as he should have been able to see. So Mark tells us that Jesus puts his hands on the man's eyes for a second time, and he made the man look up. And then we read that the man's sight was restored and that he saw everything clearly. He no longer saw men looking like trees. He saw men look like, looking like men. And I find that to be interesting. And the reason it's so interesting to me is because this is the only case that we see in the New Testament where Jesus heals someone in two stages. In the first case, Jesus spit and the man saw clearly, but not, he saw but not clearly. In the second stage, he touches him a second time and his blurry vision is cleared. Now, does this insinuate that this man's blindness was an exceptionally difficult case? I mean, was his malady maybe worse than the, the malady of the deaf and the mute man where Jesus only had to speak and do things one time? Was his, was, was his issue worse than the paralytic that was dropped down before him? Was this man's blindness more difficult than the man that had the withered hand that he healed on the Sabbath day? Was this man's malady worse than, let's say, Jairus' daughter who Jesus raised from the dead? Well, I don't believe that that's the case at all. I don't believe that this was a particularly difficult case. And the reason why I don't believe that is because Jesus is God of very God. He is the creator of everything seen and unseen. He is the one who can speak and things come into existence according to John 1. And so I don't believe that Jesus needed two stages to heal this man and yet he chose to heal him in two stages. And the question that we might want to know is why? Well, the first answer is just simply because that's what he wanted to do. He's God. He can do whatever he chooses to do however he chooses to do it. And that answer in and of itself is sufficient. But I think that we can understand a little more of why this is here and why Jesus did what he did if we investigate the rest of what this chapter is telling us. And so that leads me to one thing, though, that I want us to know. I think it tells us something about Jesus. And that's the second point that I want you to see on your outline this morning. The second point simply is this. The miracle of giving sight to the blind proves that Jesus is the Messiah. That's the first thing we need to know. That's the plain and most important thing that we need to know, really, to a large degree. You see, regardless of how many stages it took for Jesus to heal this man of his blindness, the fact that this man received sight after having been blind serves as a sign for us. The 146th Psalm, verse 8, says this, It is the Lord who opens blind eyes. So by opening this man's blind eyes so that he can see, he's proving that he's God. We might also remember that a few weeks back when we studied where the man who was deaf and could not speak was healed, that that too was a sign of the, the Messiah who would come. And that came from the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 29, verse 18, here's a messianic prophecy of which Jesus feel, fulfills here in Mark chapter 8. He says, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. Another messianic prophecy occurs in Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. The lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. Jesus is fulfilling right in their presence exactly. He's, he's proving 
that he is the Messiah. He is God of very God. So regardless of whatever else we were able to understand about this miracle, what we do know right up front, what is plain, is that this is yet another sign, this is yet another evidence that Jesus is the Holy One sent by God. He is the Messiah. But if you're like me, you're still intrigued. Why did he do it this way? Why did he do it in two stages? Because, I mean, this is obviously, there's something different about this. As a matter of fact, he heals two other blind people that we read about in the New Testament. He heals one in John chapter 9, and this man was born blind. He, was, he had a congenital defect that allowed him from the very moment that he first opened his eyes, he couldn't see anything. And Jesus heals him, and he does it in a very similar way. He spits on the ground. He makes that spit turn into to a, a mud cake, and then he spreads that on the man's eyes. Now, you thought that the other was weird. Jesus is doing some things that are really, really foreign to our concept of how healing is performed. And then he tells the man, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And when the man came up, he was able to see. One stage. And then you've got even a clearer example of it in Mark chapter 10. We'll get to it sometime in Mark chapter 10 of a man named Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus was a beggar on the side of the road because he was blind. But he heard that Jesus was coming and he began to cry out. And they tried to shush him and he wouldn't be shushed. He said, I want you to heal me. And Jesus spoke a word to him and it says he was able to see. And he got up and started following Jesus. One stage. Here, though, he heals this blind man. Two stages. And guys like me want to know why. Maybe you're in the same boat with me. Well... Here's the thing. What are we to understand about this? Well, notice the third point on your outline. I believe that this miracle serves as an illustration. The third point on your outline this morning simply is this. This miracle is an illustration. Here's where the context that I tried to explain to you earlier, I believe, comes into play. You remember that... Just previous to this miracle, Jesus is chastising his disciples because though they had been with him, though they had seen his miracles, though they had heard his teaching, though they had been and lived in an intimate way with him for all this time, they still did not recognize who he was. Then immediately following this miracle, as I also alerted you to, we read of Peter, the spokesman for the disciples, clearly proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Messiah. Therefore, what comes into focus for us is that Jesus obviously healed this man, I believe, in two stages. Not for the benefit of the man, but I believe for the benefit that the disciples might recognize their own situation. And I think it's also for our benefit as well. I like what Martin Lloyd-Jones has written. He says, our Lord's miracles are more than events. They are, in a sense, parables as well, he writes. That does not mean that we do not believe in the actual incident as a fact of history, only that it serves as an illustration as well. In other words, in healing this man in this manner, the Lord desired to bring out and to teach a vital and important lesson. Well, what is that lesson? Well, we should note that the first, when we first meet the man, he's completely blind. And his, his physical blindness means that he lived his life in total darkness. And what we must recognize is, is that his physical blindness is representative of an even more severe and terrible spiritual blindness. You see, physical blindness is something that prevents someone from seeing the light of the sun. Spiritual blindness is something that keeps one from seeing the light of the Son of God. 
Jesus said, I am the light of the world in John's gospel. But John's gospel also tells us is that men reject the light and they remain in darkness because their deeds are evil. They reject the light of the world and therefore they willfully remain in the dark. So, so who in this passage would tell us, who in this chapter would, would be that? Well, I would suggest to you that, that the, the Pharisees sort of fit that category. Jesus had just fed the 4,000. He'd already fed many others. They'd seen many things that he had done and yet they still wanted signs from him. They still wanted him to prove that he was who he claimed to be. But they didn't want him to prove it because they truly believed that he was God. They wanted to trap him. They wanted to find something that they could hang him on so that they could ultimately take his life. Many of them had been eyewitnesses to all kinds of things that proved Jesus was who he said he was, but they willfully remained blind and in the dark. But I don't believe that's a description of the disciples. After all, you remember, when Jesus came, he went up to Peter and Andrew and James and John who were professional fishermen who had a lucrative business there fishing on the Sea of Galilee there out of Capernaum. And he went to them, he says, look, guys, why don't you drop your nets? As a matter of fact, he didn't say, why don't you? He said, drop your nets. Come, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And you know what they did? They dropped them. They left family. They left business behind, and they took off following Jesus. Remember Levi? Levi is the tax collector. We more commonly know him as Matthew, the writer of the gospel of Matthew. Levi was sitting there at his booth, at his tax collecting booth, Another quite lucrative business, by the way. And Jesus came to him and says, leave that. Come follow me. And it says immediately he got up from the tax collector's booth and followed Jesus. Now here's what I would say to you. Those guys began to follow Jesus as well as other disciples began to follow Jesus because they saw something in him. There was something that connected with them. He was attractional to them. He saw, they saw them and they, he, they wanted something that he had. He had an ability to speak and to cause there's something to take place in their heart. And so they left what all they had had behind and they followed Jesus. Yet even in doing so, what we recognize is, is they still didn't know exactly who he was. They didn't see him as clearly as they should have. They'd lived his life with him. They'd seen his miracles. They'd heard his teaching. They had the intimate friendship. Yet they still failed to fully grasp who he was, why he came, and what he was capable of doing. So if the blind man in this passage initially is indicative of the Pharisees and others who willfully remain spiritually blind concerning Jesus, then, then I would say that once the man received partial sight and saw men as trees walking, when he had vision, but that vision was only partial and was still blurry, I believe that's indicative of the way the disciples had seen Jesus up to this point. They saw him, they saw his works, but their vision lacked clarity. But then there's the second touch of the master that we read about here. When Jesus puts his hand on the man's eyes for a second time, and then suddenly the man is able to see clearly. Mark says that his vision was restored, that he saw everyone clearly. And it, the man at this point then, I believe, serves as an illustration of how Peter and the other disciples saw him after this miracle occurred. I believe it represents the clarity and the precision with which Peter identified Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. So, 
If, if I'm right there, then, then, then what we've witnessed in this passage is that Jesus performs a two-stage miracle. Then that's a miracle that, of giving sight to the blind, which proved that he was the Messiah. And then a miracle that serves as an illustration for how people come to see Jesus. The question that remains is, is that how, what does that mean to me, you, and me? How does that apply to us? What, what, in what way does that comment on our lives? Well, I would begin this morning by simply saying that there are those who are still like the Pharisees. They willfully remain blind. They willfully choose not to recognize all of the things that God has done and clearly laid out in front of them that point to Jesus as being the Messiah. They refuse to understand him as that way and their hearts remain hardened to the gospel message. And as we read about in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this age has blinded them lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine upon their hearts. For those, their blindness stems from the fact that they will not see, and therefore they cannot see. And the only, the only thing that remains for them is to soften their hearts, to humble themselves before Almighty God, to recognize that He is who He says He is, and they are who the Scriptures claim them to be, and that light then will shine. Secondly, however, I would point out that there are many today, and perhaps there are some of you in this room today who find yourself in the second category. You see, there are, there are those who recognize that Jesus is in some way the hope that the Scriptures claim Him to be, but the truth is you just don't see Jesus as clearly as perhaps you should. You see, many see Jesus as a good man. They see Him as a good teacher. They see Him as a, as, as a wonderful example to follow. They think of him of, of, as, an, as the emblem of everything that is good. But they don't understand the reason that he came to die on a cross. And the reason that they don't understand that is because they truly don't understand the magnitude of their own sin. They truly don't understand the eternal weight of the punishment that hangs over them because of their sin. For many, they view themselves as pretty good people. They live pretty good lives. They live moral lives, upstanding lives. They understand that there are evil people in the world and there's wicked and evil things in the world, but that's not them. The unfortunate thing about those folks is that they see Jesus, but they're not, they're not completely blind to him. They don't see him clearly. They don't recognize that he was not just a good man or a good teacher or a good example. As a matter of fact, if all he was was a good man, a good teacher, and a good example, then he was none of those. Because the Bible says that he came to be the sacrifice for sinners and that he came to die a vicarious death on the cross and what we mean by that is is that he came to die in mine and your places he took our spot he absorbed the wrath of God upon himself so that the wrath of God might be removed from sinners like you and me and it didn't just end on the cross the story of the gospel continues on to the empty tomb because three days later Jesus burst forth from that tomb and because he is alive today you and I know that we might have life as well that too is a gift of God not something that we have earned or deserved but something simply that God gives to those who trust and exhibit faith in him you may be here today and you may still consider yourself maybe on the outside sort of looking in you're still evaluating the claims of the Bible and the claims of Christ perhaps your heart has been strangely warmed to the gospel 
And for you, Jesus is still someone that you admire and appreciate, but you're just not quite convinced of his deity. And maybe you're just not quite understanding of why he had to die. This is what I would say to you this morning. You're like this man who's been given vision, but he's still blurry. Still hasn't come into focus. Things are still not clear. To you, I would say you should ask the Lord for his second time. You should ask him to give you the sight to behold him in all of his glory. And that can only be happen when you behold yourself in all of your sin and all of your wretchedness. You will only appreciate the glory and the majesty of Jesus once you have come to grips with your own sin and your own depravity. Finally, for many of us, we would put ourselves firmly in the last group. We would put ourselves in the group of the man who actually, once the Lord had touched his eyes a second time, came to recognize that he was the Christ. This is Peter. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We don't see Jesus as simply a good man and a good teacher, but we see him as Savior and Lord. And to that end, we rejoice. And we recognize the clarity of the sign that we have is only really a result of of God's grace and mercy in our lives. And when you truly realize that Jesus has loved you like this and given you this sight when you were once blind, all you can do is sing. That's why we love the song. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found. Was blind, but now I see. Isn't that a wonderful testimony? You see, but the truth of the matter is, even though we sing that, even though we know how gracious and good God has been to us, sometimes Sometimes we still don't see him as clearly as we should, right? We sang it earlier, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We feel like Paul in Romans chapter 7. The very things that I know I shouldn't do, those are the things that I do. And the things that I know I ought to do, those are the things that I'm not doing. And you and I, if we're honest, can recognize ourselves in that testimony. And you know what precipitates that? What brings us to that point? It's because we take our eyes off Jesus. We don't look at him and see him as clearly as we should. And so consequently, many times we find ourselves in turmoil and trouble. Through many dangers, toils and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home that's our hope that's our hope is the same grace that called us into this relationship with him will be the same grace that takes us into his very presence and even though we don't see him as clearly now as we want to we recognize that one day one day We will be in his presence. Then we will no longer see through a glass dimly. Then we will see him face to face. I I, I couldn't help. 
couldn't help think about Lynn. When I finished writing this sermon, I was on my last line when Malene called me to tell me that he had died. And so on my way to the house, Beth's house and Lynn's house, these words were in, rolling through my head. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, this is, this is the message, which is a, a paraphrase, but he says this. He says, we don't yet see things clearly. We're squinting in a fog, peering through a mist. But it won't be long before the weather clears and the sun shines bright. We'll see it all then. We'll see it all as clearly as God sees us, knowing him directly, just as he knows us. Friends, that leads me to my sermon in the sentence this morning, which is just simply this. A clear vision of Jesus sees him as the Messiah who came to open blind eyes and as the Savior who came to save you from your sins. Do you see him? Can you see him? Will you see him? Our hope is that you do. And if you do, you'll be able to sing that last verse. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. All God's people said, Amen. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together.